Welcome to Three Things with Rick Elias, featuring fascinating conversations with some of the world's most insightful people and three inspiring life lessons at the end of every episode. Today's guest is Erskine Bowles, a visionary leader who's driven transformative change in both the public and private sectors over the course of an incredible career, spanning more than 50 years and dozens of impactful roles. You might know him as the former White House Chief of Staff during the Clinton administration, or as the former president of the University of North Carolina system from 2005 to 2010. Or you might know of his notable career in investment banking and private equity, founding two successful firms and later serving as a board member for companies like like Facebook, Morgan Stanley, and others. In this episode, get to know who Erskine is behind his public profile, what led him to such a wide-ranging career, how life in public service impacted his family, and how he's continuing to make a difference now. This is Three Things with Erskine Bowles. Well, today on the podcast, we have somebody that many of you will recognize as a very famous investor, investment banker, someone that serves in the government. But for me today, I have a dear friend, Erskine Bowles, sitting here with me. Erskine, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Rick. I especially like the dear friend part. It's uh, This is a long time coming. I, I have been blessed to hear a lot of your wisdom on life, and um, hopefully we can get to some of that today. Uh, so Erskine, you grew up in Greensboro, North Carolina. What was that like? I, I grew up with every advantage somebody could have. Uh, you know, if you talk about somebody starting on third base, man, I started on home plate. And uh, I was so lucky to have... Uh, a mom and dad who had great values and worked hard at instilling those values in their kids. You followed in similar tracks as your dad, right? An investment banker, you went into business for yourself and then ended up as a public servant. Was that by design because you admire his journey or was that more random? Oh gosh, I did admire his journey for sure. What my dad was, was a guy who would have a good idea and would try to turn that good idea into a business. Mm. Work hard with the people he brought in to run it, to develop it into a medium-sized business, and then he would either sell it to the people who'd helped him build it, take it public, or sell it to somebody else. And he would drag me along as he did that. And what I liked about what he did was the actual transaction. Mm. And I learned as I grew up that the, the people who actually did that were people who were called investment bankers. And so I knew from a pretty early stage that that's what I really wanted to do from a business viewpoint. My dad also really believed in public service. He called it adding to the community woodpile. And what he meant by that was when, when he was growing up, he would see his dad uh, go out with his grandfather, and they would go out on a farm and chop a few logs uh, to keep the family warm over the winter. And on the way home, they would throw a few logs on the community woodpile for the people who couldn't do that for themselves. And he felt that everyone had a responsibility to add to the community woodpile. 
He didn't think it made any difference whether you were a Republican or a Democrat, if you were the right of his good friend Jesse Helms or to the left of Gore Vidal, mm. that all of us had a responsibility to do our best to make this world a better place. You started your own firm, and this is something I've never asked you, uh, and as I was preparing for today, it, it struck me that I, I, I really am very curious. Uh, did you start your firm, which was a very successful investment banking firm, to eventually sell it, or did you make the decision to sell it somewhere along the way? I definitely didn't start it to sell it. You know, I have lived my life way out of my comfort zone, and when you do that, you're going to have failures, <laughs> And you're, you have the chance to have successes that are beyond your greatest dreams. Yeah. And one of the things I, I learned from my dad is, you know, I would come home from business school or something and talk about five-year plans and stuff, and he'd look at me and <laughs> he would say, listen here, buddy Rowe. He said, here's the deal. Just do a really good job at what you're doing today. And if you do somebody's going to notice. And when they do, and when they make you an offer to do something else, even if you're scared to death that you can't do it or you don't know if you have the tools to do it well, don't be afraid to say yes. And by that he meant, you know, get out of your comfort zone and see if you have a chance to make a real difference. We were building a firm based on really three principles. One was never overpromise. Do what you say you're going to do, when you say you're going to get it done, and don't overpromise. The second one was to always do quality. And the third was to build a firm based on mutual respect. I wanted the person sitting at the far end of the table to know, you know, if we were discussing what was the right idea for, for a client of ours I wanted them to be able to speak up and not be afraid to speak up. And that's what we tried to do. And we got really lucky. You know, there, this whole what's now called private equity came into existence. We sold people like Forceman Little and KKR, their first deals. You know, they never dreamed they'd be doing great, ever do great big giant deals. But yeah. What did you decide to sell? I sold it principally because... I met this character named Bill Clinton. And, huh. you know, as he made we, you an offer you couldn't refuse? Well, kind of. I'll tell you what he, what he did. We did all of or most of Goldman Sachs' small deals. Right. Goldman figured out that when one of their big clients like Kellogg came to them to sell the Battle Creek Gas Company, that they were a lot better off having us do it. And, and they knew we would do a great job, just like they would have done it if they were doing the deal. And we'd never be competition to get the business. Anyway, so uh, I got a call from Goldman, and they asked me to come up to New York to meet with them that day. They gave us this great big deal. They didn't negotiate the fee, anything. I thought, wow, this is great. <laughs> and afterwards, they said, would you mind staying for a few minutes? And I said, sure. And they said, haven't you been involved in politics in North Carolina. And I said, I did work in my dad's campaign, but I haven't done anything in there. And for sure, I'm not a politician, and I don't ever want to be one. And they said, well, you know, we have this guy that we're supporting who is the governor of Arkansas who's running for president. 
we wondered if you might be willing to have a fundraiser in North Carolina. And I thought, oh, God, that's just what I need to do. Because not only did I have both Hollowell, which was growing like a weed, right. but I was the, the national president of the Juvenile Diabetes Research Foundation because both my sons have type 1 diabetes. And, and like everything else in my life, I threw myself at it and became the national president. I just didn't have time to, yeah, yeah, to, to do a fundraiser. But uh, Governor Clinton came there, and I met him. And, you know, I had been hanging around politicians all my life, and I'd never met any that I really thought much of. And here was a guy who was fiscally responsible, socially progressive, and had more personal magnetism than anybody I'd met in my life. And I thought, wow. Where have these people gone? I don't know. It's hard to get good people to run for public office because it is difficult. After that, he would call me whenever he was anywhere near North Carolina and ask me I'd go ride with him. And the one thing that Bill Clinton had a void in was knowledge of business. And he has an insatiable desire to learn. You just can't fill it up. And he would call me up, and he'd ask me to go ride with him. We'd go ride around, and he'd ask me question after question after question. I mean, it was, I felt like I was being, you know, in a, you know question booth in the car. And uh, I also learned that I had to be careful of what I told him because he turned around and repeated it like it was right. <laughs> you know, <laughs> and I say a lot of stupid things. And so I had to be much more careful. And anyway, one of the days I was supposed to go ride with him, what happened to be a day that uh, my son Sam had a low blood sugar seizure from his diabetes. And if you've ever seen that, it just rips your heart out. And... Uh, so I couldn't meet up with him, and he ended up in Charlotte that night and went over and met with him. And he looked at me when I stepped in the car, and he said, Erskine, you look really blue today. I said, so what's wrong? And I told him about this seizure, and, and I told him what made me so mad was that George Bush had just vetoed the stem cell research bill after it passed the Senate. And I said, it's totally separated from the abortion issue now. And the scientists at the Juvenile Diabetes Foundation tell me it's the best hope for a cure for my son Sam and all the other little Sams who have this horrible disease. And I, I remember telling Crandall, my wife, that night, she said, well, what did he say? And I said, you know, for a guy who's supposed to be so empathetic, you know, he didn't say anything. It was like I was talking to the windshield wiper. <laughs> wow. But about three weeks later, he made his major health care speech at Merck. And in that speech, he said, I have a friend of mine who's a conservative business guy in North Carolina who has a son he loves more than life who has diabetes. And he's convinced me that we ought to take the politics out of scientific research. And if I'm elected president, I'm going to lift a ban on stem cell research. And I still get, if you can see me. I, I, I literally, yeah, I just yeah, got goosebumps yeah. as you tell the story. And he goes on, and lo and behold, the guy wins, you know. And they offered me a whole bunch of jobs to come work in administration, and it just wasn't on my dream sheet of things I wanted to do. And all along, you're running your firm, running the firm, do, doing doing all my stuff, you know. And uh, the day he becomes president, he calls me up on the phone, and I said, "You know, the president's calling me? Are you kidding?" <laughs> you know. And he said, "Look, I'm having a group of business people up to the White House tomorrow. Would you come?" I said, "Are you kidding? I never." I don't think I've even been to Washington, much less been to the White House. <laughs> yeah, I'll come. That'd be great. And so I, I go up there, and after the meeting, he turned to me and said, Erskine, would you mind coming down to the Oval Office? I thought, man, this is something. 
And he goes, yeah, I'm the little guy from Guilford County, North Carolina. And uh, anyway, we go down there, and he walks over to his desk, and he took a pen out, and he signed something, and he walked to me. He said, Erskine, this is the pen I just used, lifting, signing executive order, lifting the ban on stem cell research. He said, I want you to take this pen home and give it to your son, Sam, and tell him today he has hope, hope for a cure. I thought, wow, what strength, you know? And I went home that night, and I told Crandall, I said, I want to go help this guy. I want to go work for this guy. And the next day I walked in and told my partners, I said, I'm going to leave. I'm going to go work for Bill Clinton if he'll have me. And I'll take, I'm will i going to take any job he offers, whatever it is. And he asked me to go head the Small Business Administration, which is like, by the way, going to Guam. <laughs> it's so far <laughs> off Broadway. Uh, and he did me a real favor there because every little mistake you make, you know, the SBA doesn't end up on the front page of the Wall Street Journal of the New York Times. And I went there and we sold the business. How did you end up as chief of staff? What was that conversation? Oh, uh, he was, again... I was leaving. I'd been there a year and a half, and I'd only promised him a year, okay? And he calls me up. I didn't know he had been trying to make a decision to have a new chief of staff. Mm. And the two people he was considering were Leon Bonetta and myself, which I didn't know. And he never even told me that. Uh, he had made the decision to, to make Leon chief of staff, which, by the way, was the right decision. And he asked me if I would come and be deputy chief of staff and be in charge of uh, the organization and structure and the focus and uh, to because there were so many problems with you know in the White House at that point in time I, I was really lucky I got to work under Leon who was a, a great leader I got to learn my client who was the president and I got to understand the rhythm of the White House and I also got to understand how you work with the Congress and and how you get things done. I did that uh, as deputy chief of staff for about two years. And then he calls me up, and he's running for re-election, and he said, look, I want you to manage the debates uh, for the campaign. And and we did that, and I had to spend a lot of time with him to do that. And there's a lot of funny stories connected with that. But You told me that he was so prepared for this debate like and he was so smart and that he would study at at a level that you never seen you know what what he did that in everything but in the debates he called me up said i'm gonna pick you up we were going up to mackinac mackinac island to for the debate prep and you we have to remember we spent months preparing these debate books i mean we knew everything about bob dole we knew Every, you know, every issue laid out there, you know, questions, answers, what Dole would say, what the uh, president would say in response, and what the president would say to the question, and what Dole would respond, and how he would respond. I mean, we had really done our homework. And he, of course, felt, you know, he'd been president, been going to press conference, he thought he knew everything, you know, and, and, <laughs> and I got Hillary and the co up there with us, and Chelsea Clinton, and his daughter, and his family, we we're going to very turn him on the web. We said, man, we're going to have a good time. We're going to play golf as soon as we get there. It's going to be great. <laughs> I said, no, Mr. President. I said, look, I said, I know you're ready. I know you know all this stuff. But, 
But, you know, really, you know, let's just go in there, you know, and we just have one run through. I got George Mitchell coming up to play Dole, you know, and, and you know, you kill him, you know, it'll be great. And then we'll go play golf. Okay. But, you know, and we went in there, we'd given Mitchell the questions and the answers, and he slaughtered the president, slaughtered him. And that's exactly what we need to do in front of his family. And he went right upstairs and he went to work. And we beat him that night on the second run through. We beat him the next morning. By the fourth time through, though, he was holding his own. And from then on, he was, he just knocked it out of a ballpark. And to tell you how you can prepare somebody for that, he never got to ask a question he hadn't been prepared to say. And Dole never gave an answer that we didn't have exactly the answer that we had told the president he would say. Oh, my goodness. So we, you know, and he, and he, he, uh, Clinton won those debates hands down. But he he gave me a chance to do something I never could have done uh, other than the the trust he placed in me to to do it. So I know that um, in this stage of your life, you've been working on some projects uh, that you're very excited about. Let's talk about the the uh, affordable housing project a little bit. I know you're working on this with a dear friend of yours and helping entrepreneurs and galvanizing Charlotte like you always do to do some work for the good of the community. Um, where did this come from and, and you know what have you learned in this process? Well, you know, when Nelson Swab, who founded Carousel uh, with me, uh, Carousel Capital, yeah. uh, when... Nelson decided to retire, and I was thinking about slowing down. But Nelson wanted to to focus on the homeless situation in Charlotte and to really do something about it. And I had been thinking about doing something that focused on the lack of economic mobility in Charlotte. The more we studied it, the more we came to understand that the precursor of both was the lack of affordable housing. So we did research on what had been done in Charlotte, and we saw that Charlotte had, you know, wasn't creating more than about 130, you know, affordable housing units a year. And when you had a 30,000 unit shortage, you weren't gonna ever get to the promised land. What we found had been tried in one place was something called this NOAA concept of buying older apartments and fixing them up and turning around and renting them to people in need at affordable rates. How many units do you have now? In the first fund, we have 805. We'll probably end up at 1,000. And in the second fund, we've just raised $66 million, and we should be able to, to do at least another, you know, 1,250 to 1,300 units. And we should be housing, you know, well over 5,000 people in two years' worth of time. And and we were able to do it in a fiscally responsible manner. Take somebody who's making $1,200 a month and at the most derelict place in Charlotte that you can find to rent, you know, is at least $900 a month. So, you know, it's just taking all of our money just to provide a, a horrible place to live. And we're able to provide them a quality place to live at a rent monthly rent of $375 a month. And, you know, that just, that changes their lives enormously just just that alone they're able to save money for a home of their own they're able to buy the medicine and food for their kids we also bring all the social services to the people 
who live there. We have a community health care worker that works at every one of our apartments. We're able to provide physical and mental health care right there at the apartments. We're able to provide all the other social services you can. We have, you know, I wish we didn't because I wish they were making too much money to live in these things. But we have teachers living there who are working with kids. Yeah. We have, you know, health care workers living there. Same thing. When you first told me about the idea a couple years ago, I, I, I was going to support because it was you. And then when I've seen the result, I just think it's a, it's an incredible model. So let's pivot a little bit of the conversation, right. Erskine. Um, you are married to an incredible woman, Crandall, who in her own account, had a, a equally consequential career. Yeah, more so. Yeah, yeah. And, and did her own, you know, her, her own journey. What was it like for you guys to have two super successful parents with two kids? And, and I'm sure it wasn't perfect as it was, but what was that like going through it? You know, Crandall, uh, it was and is ex extraordinary. Uh, she was the first female we ever hired at Morgan Stanley. That's where I met her, you know, the first. You know, she was the first female business, member of the business roundtable and the business council. She ran the largest company in the country uh, at that point in time, headed by a woman. Uh, and she ran it really well. She was on the board of, of Deere, uh, Sarah Lee, uh, J.P. Morgan. She was, I mean... Most remarkable person I've ever known. We really had a, we both tried to support each other in the jobs we had, and but she did far more than the than a 50-50 relationship. And I've often said of the, the biggest mistake I made was I had my work home life way out of balance, and I missed a lot of stuff. And it's not a movie, you know when. My family was having dinner at the dinner table in the kitchen every night. You know, we'd have a speakerphone there, and I'd be there on the speakerphone. And I'd think, man, what a great dad I am. I'm really there, you know. But I wasn't. You know, when my daughter was playing basketball, I'd fly in and coach her team and fly out and think, oh, man, what a you know great father I am. And, you know, I just, you know, I miss so much. And I would have memories today that I don't have, that I didn't earn. And I want to stress that word, Aaron. I didn't earn them. And so one of the things I talk about when, when I'm talking to kids who are in business school or law school or just starting out at a firm is spend time with your family. Could you have done 90% of what you did and still have that or would it have had to be in a different life? The easy answer is I don't know. The right answer is probably not. I never learned how to study for a C or a B. I only knew how to study to get an A. And that's what I was trying to do. What message would you like your great-grandchildren to hear from you? So if they're listening to this recording someday, what message would you like them to know? Spend time with your family. Add to the community woodpile. And whether you're in public service or private sector, the not-for-profit sector, never overpromise. Do what you say you're going to do, when you say you get it done, and never overpromise. It's like their great-grandfather said to me, the only time I got it, he said, you know, when I tell your mom I'm going to be home at 7, and I get home at 7.30, I'm in the doghouse. But if I tell her I'm going to be home at 8, 
and I get home at that exact same 7.30, I'm a hero. Either way, I got home at 7.30, but one way I'm a hero, the other I'm a dog. And, but the first two are the most important. You know, do your part to make this world a better place and spend time with your family. Listen, Erskine, I, I was looking forward to this conversation because I get the privilege of having heard your story, learned from your journey, and always marvel at your humility. Um, and but, I, but more than anything, I just really value our friendship. I do too. And thank you. You've been a wonderful friend to me. And I hope you will stay that way. <laughs> so thank you. One of the main reasons I started this podcast was so that others could hear the great wisdom of people like Erskine. I hope you enjoyed that conversation. Here are the three things I took away from today. Number one, Erskine talks about learning to live outside of our comfort zone. Success and failure are ultimately two sides of the same coin. Embracing both is the key unlock to living this way. Number two is the concept that our word really matters. If we just focus on doing what we say we're gonna do, not only is life much simpler, but it leads to opening of many other doors. If you're failing at this point to live up to your word, that is perhaps a sign that you're overpromising. And number three, and my favorite, is that memories are ultimately earned. What a great concept to think about. And the ingredients are pretty simple. Be present with the people you love doing things that bring you joy. Thank you. Rick shared his three things, but we want to know your takeaways as well. Find at Rick Elias on social media and let us know your thoughts on this conversation. And be sure to check out additional content, videos, and more at our blog, threethings.redventures.com. Thanks for listening.